The first lesson is a reading from the book of Jonah, beginning with the first verse of the second chapter. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed up upon me forever. Yet you brought me up, my life, from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. We begin with the 22nd verse of the 14th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had diminished, after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. The Gospel of the Lord. O oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts this day be acceptable in thy sight, for thou art our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. 
and I invite any children uh, to go with Mrs. Shedden down to the uh, room downstairs. They'll be doing a craft today. Welcome to join her. How many of you have been to the seashore in the last three months? All right, a good number of you. You know a little about water then, right? Water, it's one of those things that is part of who we are essentially as beings. You know, it's estimated that 200 million work hours a day are consumed by people collecting water for their families around the world. 70% of the adult body is water, and for infants, that's 80%. And 70 to 75% of the Earth's surface is covered in water. A cup of water can save a life. A wave of water can bring certain death. One of the things that I like to do in my spare time is peruse YouTube and look at the big videos of the rogue waves hitting the liners. You ever see those where the, the, uh, freight, the freighter is going across the, uh, the ocean? Water can bring life or death. And in today's lectionary passages, it's interesting because as we come to this day in the church year, these are the assigned readings. They're not readings that I chose. And yet here we are talking about baptism, and look what figures so crucially in all of the readings. Water, right? Water. From Jonah resisting God's purpose to go and bring repentance, the word of the Lord, to Nineveh, to Jesus calling Peter out of the boat to walk on the water. Water in Scripture says things very important, and it uh, has to deal with significance of life and death. But I want to look at three particular points this morning about water, and I want to focus on three points. You might want to jot them down if you're one of those types of folks. Death, adoption, and covenant. Death, adoption, and covenant. You might be scratching your head at this point saying, what are we doing talking about death with baptism? Hold on. You'll see. The earliest writings after the Bible, called the Didache, or the teaching of the apostles, begins with this line. There are two ways, one of life and one of death. There is a great difference between those two ways. And of course, that's talking about the choice that every individual has, living a life honoring to God, or living a life in rebellion to God. The Christian doctrine of original, sometimes it's called ancestral sin, declares that we all stand guilty of sin no matter what we've done. From our birth, we're guilty of this original sin and we deserve eternal death, according to St. Paul. Reading from Romans 1.22, Paul gives us that narrative of what's happened to mankind. He says, claiming to be wise, 
they, that is mankind, became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts or desires of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Now, we might say, of course, we don't worship at the foot of idols anymore, big things made of molten iron or gold or bronze, and yet we too worship too often outside of Jesus at the foot of the creature rather than the creator, don't we? From the very beginning, we worship at the very least this creature, this creature right here rather than his creator or her creator. And that's what original sin most essentially consists of. Article 9 of the 39 Articles of Religion, which is one of the basic tenets of the Anglican faith, defines original sin this way, saying, original sin is the fault and corruption of the nature of every man that naturally is engendered of the offspring of Adam whereby man is very far gone from the original righteousness. I love the way the old English says that. Very far gone, yes indeed. And of his own nature, man is inclined to evil, so that the flesh lusteth always contrary to the spirit. And therefore in every person born into this world, it deserveth God's wrath and damnation. And this infection of nature doth remain. This infection of nature doth remain. You know, I was, we were uh, at St. Michael's Conference a couple weeks ago dealing with high school kids and college kids and talking about sin. And one of the things that I've noticed is that most people think about sin today just as choosing wrong rather than choosing right. But if we go back to the scriptures and the word of God, we see that it's much more than just a choice of wrong or right. And I love the word that's used here. It's more like an infection. It's more like a disease. It's something that sits in the very core of us and we can't escape. We can't escape. We try to choose right outside of Jesus Christ, and yet we cannot. We cannot. That infection stacks the deck against us, friends, before we come to know and love Jesus. We cannot be good or just without God. We can't stand before God and say, yes, Lord, I've kept all the law and the commandments, and I deserve to be in your presence. Who of us can say that? We all know that we can't. And yet, in God's love, he grants us a choice to embrace one of those two ways, that inheritance of death and damnation or the inheritance of life eternal and everlasting. We can choose our inheritance. Are we going to be sons and daughters of Adam and follow his way, or are we going to be sons and daughters of Jesus Christ and follow his way? God wishes us to be with him eternally, to be in communion with him, to be in family with him, unhampered by sin. That's the hope. 
But here and now, it can be confusing. Because in order to be with him, we have to follow his will. And in order to follow his will, we have to put to death the things that are naturally in us. Now that's not a a popular saying, that's not a popular thought in today's society of self-affirmation and making people feel good at all costs. But that's the reality, that unless we put to death those things, those tendencies, priorities, natural desires, unless we put to death those things, we are still in rebellion against God. So what does baptism have to do with death? Everything. Everything. Because Jesus gives us the ability to put to death our natural selves. Look, don't take my word for it. Jesus says it himself in Matthew 16, 25. He says, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then he goes on to give the justification. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? He who wishes to save his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. We see no more powerful example of this than the story of Jonah in our first reading, don't we? And for years, the church fathers, the theologians of the church universal going back to the beginning have said that Jonah is an image of mankind. That Jonah is an image of mankind. The prophet Jonah, it's a fascinating book. Go home and read it. It's probably only five pages in your Bible. Um, Jonah doesn't get it, interestingly enough. You get to the end of the book and he still doesn't get it, in my opinion. And yet, Jonah, who's sent to bring a message of repentance to the people of Nineveh, tries to run away from God. Right? How does he get into the belly of the whale or the great fish? He's running away from God. God sends him to Nineveh and he says no. He gets on a boat and he travels the other direction to, to a place called Tarshish. We're not sure where it is, but it's the other way on the Mediterranean Sea. And so after running into a storm, again, this great water, Jonah is thrown overboard at his request actually. And God appoints this great fish, this great whale. The Hebrew is actually unclear. It just says a great sea monster of some sort to come and swallow him. And so it's from the belly of that animal that Jonah cries out to God. Did you notice what Jonah cries out to God? He finally sees that he's in the pit of death. He's in Sheol. He quotes the Psalms back to the Lord saying, I can do nothing about this. Please help me. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Please hear my voice. He's been avoiding God's will. He's been running from God. And so God blocks his way and takes him down to the bottom of the sea. A great preacher and bishop and theologian, St. Chrysostom, writing in the 300s, says this about Jonah. He says, let us drown our sins and our city, that is ourselves, will be most assuredly safe. Flight will certainly be of no advantage to us. What Chrysostom's saying here is that just like Jonah, you and I cannot outrun our sins. 
Oh yes, we try. We try to be distracted from them. We try to run from them. We try to get away from them. We try to cover them up. We try to lock them down in the basement. And yet we cannot outrun our sins because of that original sin. Chris Austin continues talking about Jonah. For it did not profit Jonah after, however, being thrown out into the deep and having put away his sins by means of punishment, he had been conveyed into that unstable vessel. Now, this is Old English. It's an Old English translation. What's he saying? He's saying that it doesn't profit Jonah to run away from his sins. However, when he's thrown overboard, when he receives that punishment of death, he's conveyed by that vessel, a whale's belly, to great security. Chris Austin continues, this was for the purpose of teaching thee that no ship can be of use to him who is living in sin. So him who has put away his sin, the sea cannot drown nor monsters destroy. This is the first point of baptism. We gather together to put to death or to use the Book of Common Prayer language to renounce Satan, the world, and the flesh. Satan, the world, and the flesh. The word renounce means formally to declare one's abandonment to or right of. And therefore, baptism drowns our death. You see, it's by death that we get life. And baptism drowns our old selves in that death. And when, in a few moments here, Lydia and Noel come forward, you'll see in the bulletin that first thing we do is what's called an exorcism. And that's just a fancy word to say that we're renouncing the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're turning away from the world, the flesh, and the devil, from original sin, from the natural state of things. Her parents will do it on her behalf. And in doing so, they instead declare their allegiance to God, to Jesus. Because that's the second part, the second point. The adoption that goes on in the Christian family. The second part of baptism, the profession of faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is done on behalf of the child by her parents and godparents. It's an adoption process, just as a natural adoption process would go. You don't have a choice, generally, as the child, when you're adopted from one family into another. And so it is with the Christian adoption process. We're adopted from one family, the kingdom of darkness, into God's family. And so here in this adoption, these children are going to be brought into Jesus' kingdom. Romans 8.15 tells us that we as Christians have received the spirit of adoption as sons. It's God's call and grace, and that alone which saves. And we have a powerful image of that too in the readings today. Look with me at Matthew chapter 14 verse 22. What's going on in this passage? Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. Jesus sends the disciples out onto the Sea of Galilee. And we're told that this is in the evening. Now, Jesus has just fed the 5,000. And so he sends the disciples ahead of him. And what happens? 
a storm blows up. Look with me at the, at the passage. When evening came, he was there alone, that is Jesus. Verse 24, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And the fourth watch of the night, he, that is Jesus, came to them, walking on the sea. Jesus, in Matthew's gospel, has already calmed the storm back in chapter 8, verse 23. So Jesus is here, once again, walking over water, not for the sake of declaring that he's the master of the sea, but for something deeper and more meaningful. Jesus walks on the waves, declaring that he walks on the top of death. Do you see that? Jesus walking on the water here, a symbol for death, is showing that he walks on the very waves of death. And what does he do? He cries out, or Peter cries out to him and says, Lord, if it's you, have me come walk on the water. And Jesus says, come walk on the water. And Peter goes and he walks out there on the sea. And what happens? He starts to sink. He starts to go down. He has the wherewithal to cry out, Lord, help me. <laughs> but he starts to go down. And so here again, we see an image of death and life. And we see Jesus enacting what goes on in the salvation process. What does Jesus do? Jesus comes to Peter. Verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Truly, you are the Son of God. So once again, water here, a sign of death, Jesus walking on top of it, an example of adoption. Finally, in baptism we covenant. In baptism, we covenant. Now, what's covenant? It's just a fancy word for a super important promise. A super important promise. And it's a promise that's fulfilled by Jesus on our behalf. Some people have asked me, why is it that we baptize infants? How is it that they can come to the kingdom of God without themselves deciding to do so? The answer is that just as Jesus reaches out to Peter, so he reaches out to save and bless Lydia and Noel today, and all of us. He reaches out to claim what's his own, what was his from the beginning, what's been stolen, what's wandered away, his sons and daughters. This is no new idea, by the way. God reaches out to his people this way throughout both testaments. You know, we could go back and I could give you an exposition of Genesis chapter 17 today, but I won't, as tempted as I am. But what goes on in Genesis chapter 17 with Abraham? A covenant is made. And does that covenant just deal with adults? No. Children as young as eight days old are brought into that covenant with God. 
In fact, I'll read it for you. 17.7, and I will establish my covenant, God says, between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. And so in the Old Testament, our people brought into covenant with God as a sign of God's covenant. Baptism corresponds to circumcision, friends, for us in the new covenant. It's, we're brought into it. We're brought into it by our family, by our godparents and parents, and by Jesus himself, most importantly. Bishop Irenaeus of Lyon, writing in 189 AD, writes that Jesus came to save all through himself, all I say, who through him are reborn in God, infants and children, youths and old men. Therefore, he passed through every age, becoming an infant for infants, sanctifying infants, a child for children, sanctifying those who are of that age so that he might be the perfect teacher in all things. Perfect not in respect to setting forth the truth, but perfect also in respect to every relative age. And of course, most importantly, Jesus himself tells us in the Gospels that it's to children that belong the kingdom of God. It's to children that belong the kingdom of God. So, it is that people of all ages are people of promise when they come into covenant with the Lord. The essence of covenant is this, that you and I deserved to be plunged beneath the waves of sin and death. That you and I cannot stand on the waves of our own merit, but someone has descended to the depths and someone has come out of the depths and someone raises you and I up to life eternal. That someone is Jesus Christ and is only Jesus Christ. And he's the only one who walks on the waves. He's the only one that conquers death. He's the only one that can give us the ability to be presented before the Father in covenant. Once again here, water, a sign of death, but not the death of you or I, a sign of the death of Jesus, a sign of covenant, a sign of God's love. So in a couple minutes when we go through this, pay attention to the wording and the action, what's being done, because what we're doing is no less than transferring Lydia and Noel from the kingdom of darkness, from the inheritance of Adam to the kingdom of light and the inheritance of of our Lord Jesus Christ. She'll be sealed with a cross, a mark that she'll bear the rest of her life. And we pray that both she, both of them, both Lydia and both Noel, bear that cross faithfully, persist to the end, and at one point stand before their Lord himself and profess that Jesus Christ is Lord and live forever. 
as St. Chrysostom said in closing, it's the pur for the purpose of teaching thee that while no ship can be of use to him who's living in sin, so him who has put away his sin, the sea cannot drown nor monsters destroy. Amen.